presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Your host is Dr. Maurice Pickard, internist and medical ethicist. Although HIV transmission through breast milk is a significant global health issue, many mothers and their babies depend on breastfeeding for survival. What therapeutic interventions are recommended for mothers with HIV in order to prevent transmission of the virus to their babies? Our guest is Dr. Lynn Moffinson, Chief of Pediatrics, Adolescent, and Maternal AIDS Branch at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development at the National Institute of Health in Rockville, Maryland. Thank you, Dr. Moffinson, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. To begin with, can you tell us about the scope of the issue of HIV transmission from breast milk? Sure. About 430,000 children become infected with HIV each year, and 90% of this is in sub-Saharan Africa. HIV can be transmitted from mother to child during pregnancy, during labor and delivery, and during breastfeeding. And in a breastfeeding population, about 20% of transmission occurs during pregnancy, 40% during delivery, and as much as 40% during prolonged breastfeeding. So in the absence of any preventive intervention, the overall risk of transmission can be as high as 35% in breastfeeding women, with about 15% of this occurring through breastfeeding. What are the benefits, then, of breastfeeding, and why don't we just replace it and use supplements? It's a very good question. Like in the U.S., HIV-infected women are advised not to breastfeed their infants because safe and affordable infant formula is available, and infant deaths from infectious diseases like diarrhea are very uncommon. But this is not true in Africa. In Africa, there's often not safe water to prepare formula. Formula is very expensive, and breast milk is critical to provide the infant with protection against infections that commonly cause death in infancy. So breastfeeding in these settings is actually critical to infant survival. And there's studies showing in developing countries, if you compare breastfeeding infants to infants who are not breastfeeding, those infants have a three- to six-fold increased risk of death in the first six months of life and a one-and-a-half to two-fold increased risk of death through age one year due to not breastfeeding. And that's primarily due to deaths secondary to diarrhea and respiratory infections. So it seems obvious that breastfeeding is here to stay, especially in sub-Sahara Africa. So what are the recommendations for breastfeeding mothers who are HIV positive in the past, and have those recommendations been effective? Sure. So um, HIV-infected women have had a really impossible choice, either to breastfeed their infant but know that they could pass HIV infection to their baby, or to not breastfeed their infant but then have them be uninfected but die due to infections such as diarrhea and pneumonia that breast milk can protect them from. So past recommendations for HIV-infected women in places where replacement feeding was just not available and breastfeeding is critical for infant survival was to exclusively breastfeed the infant for the first few months of life 
to provide them protection against the most critical period from infections, and then have early weaning at four to six months to then decrease the risk of HIV transmission. And just one comment that exclusive breastfeeding has been associated with lower risk of breast milk transmission than mixed breastfeeding, that is breastfeeding and giving water or other milk. So the recommendations for breastfeeding for a few months and then early weaning didn't work very well because the infants who were weaned at four to six months of age were uninfected but had still high rates of mortality and malnutrition. And so what we needed was a way to allow HIV-infected women to safely breastfeed for more prolonged periods. But until this year, we really haven't had that option. So this year, have there been some new developments that are changing our way of treating this problem? Yes. This year, there were two exciting new studies that were published in the New England Journal that now give us two different ways that we can allow safe breastfeeding by HIV-infected mothers, yet prevent HIV infection, and that's by giving anti-HIV drugs to the infant or giving anti-HIV drugs to the mother. Both uh, types of prevention appear effective and relatively safe. So what are the pros and cons of the two methods that you've just suggested? Well, the first thing that we need to address is treatment. And the most important thing that we can do to prevent HIV infection is to identify infection in the mother before or early in pregnancy and then evaluate whether she needs to be on treatment for life. And that is for women who have... uh, severe disease or have a CD4 count below 350. 92% of maternal deaths and 88% of infant infections occur in this group of women, all of whom should be started on lifelong triple drug therapy. So the intervention that actually would have the most substantial impact on infant infection and on maternal health is starting lifelong therapy in women who need treatment for their own health. So that's the first most important thing, treat women who need treatment. Now, for those women who don't need treatment, those women who have minimal symptoms and a CD4 count over 350, and that's probably 40% or so of infected women or more, we now know that use of anti-HIV drugs during pregnancy and by the infant or mother during breastfeeding can reduce the risk of passing HIV from 35 to 40% to under 2 to 3%. So now we're talking about the women who don't need treatment. We know that giving the infant nevirapine, so this is giving the infant daily nevirapine during the course of breastfeeding, can reduce the risk of postnatal infection to about 1% to 2% in breastfeeding infants. And giving the mother three drugs during breastfeeding can reduce the risk of transmission about the same. So given two relatively similar effective interventions, the choice of which one to use involves a number of considerations, including relative costs, the feasibility, risks and benefits, And current information doesn't allow us to say which one is better, although we do have clinical trials that will address whether one is better than the other. So giving the baby a single drug, giving the baby daily nevirapine, is less expensive than giving three drugs to the mother. 
However, giving three drugs to the mother in pregnancy and breastfeeding may be viewed as easier to do than giving the mother AZT in pregnancy and then giving the infant nevirapine during breastfeeding. So uh, I think that it is an individual country choice, and there are pros and cons to both of these. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Children's Health Month on ReachMD XM 160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Lynn Moffison, Chief of the Pediatric, Adolescent, and Maternal AIDS Branch at the National Institute of Children's Health and Human Development at the National Institute of Health in Rockville, Maryland. And we're talking about preventing HIV transmission in breastfeeding. You mentioned the use of three drugs. Is this likely to cause drug resistance when you expose the mother to three drugs? Well, three drugs is what's used for treatment. So, no, it should not be associated with the development of resistance unless the mother is not adhering to the regimen. I think the the issues around three drugs, there are still relatively controversial issues. For example, you're using three drugs during pregnancy and then for extended period during breastfeeding. So these are in women who don't require treatment for their own health, and therefore when the risk of HIV transmission is over, when the mother has weaned the baby, you would stop those drugs. So you would be giving these three drugs to the mother for a duration of potentially six months during pregnancy and 12 months during breastfeeding, and that's 18 months of three drug use in the mother, and then stopping. And we don't know whether that is something good or bad for maternal health. On one hand, giving the mother three drugs, which is like treatment, could help prevent any disease progression in the mother. On the other hand, stopping the drugs when the risk is gone could be detrimental as well. Additionally, we, you know, these drugs have only been used in pregnancy for a relatively short period of time, you know, less than a decade. We have good data that the use of zidovudine during pregnancy is safe. The use of combination regimens, we have less data on, although we have no data yet to indicate that there is a problem. There are some data that suggest that there may be an increased risk of preterm delivery in women who are receiving combination drugs. So there are, you know, pros and cons for use of three drugs. You mentioned something earlier. You said we have to fit the treatment to the country. Is that to say that especially where resources are low, you must fit the treatment to the culture rather than the other way around? Well, yes. I think, you know, a country has limited resources. If the country has limited resources, they have to decide whether they want to spend their money providing three drugs to the mother for a prolonged period of time and then stopping them if she doesn't need it, or whether they're going to provide a single drug to the infant. So one is clearly less expensive than the other. But that's not the only issue that needs to be discussed because the other issue is making sure that the drugs are given and adhered to. And the infant nevirapine regimen is combined with giving AZT during pregnancy, giving single-dose nevirapine to the mother, and then giving her a week of AZT3TC. And so that antenatal intrapartum regimen plus the infant regimen is more complicated than just saying, I'm going to give one regimen to the mother the entire time. So people have to sit down and say, how much money do I have? What's feasible in the country or not? whether they feel that breastfeeding or replacement feeding is a feasible recommendation for the country. Some countries, for example, South Africa, many HIV-infected women don't breastfeed. 
they formula feed because formula is available and it may be safe and the risk of infectious diseases is lower than in other countries where resources are much lower. Today we've heard how science may have an answer for the transmission of HIV to children through breastfeeding. But also, there may be other obstacles that may be difficult to overcome. I want to thank Dr. Lynn Moffison for discussing preventing HIV transmission in breastfeeding. Dr. Moffison, thank you for being our guest. You're welcome. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Focus on Children's Health is supported by Genzyme Corporation, researching the most challenging areas of medical need. Learn more about one of the world's leading biotechnology companies at Genzyme.com. Genzyme Corporation is proud to support this important programming for ReachMD listeners. Genzyme Corporation does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by ReachMD. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. How can mucopolysaccharidosis 1 or MPS 1 present? Listen as Dr. Chet Whitley, Director, Advanced Therapies, Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota, describes a case of MPS-1. Allison was referred to the University of Minnesota Genetics Clinic when there were concerns raised about her skeletal changes, her physical appearance that suggested mucopolysaccharidosis. Allison had subtle facial changes which have been historically called coarsening or puffiness of the facial features. There was some significant curvature of the back or kyphosis or gibbous deformity of the back. There was also a very, very subtle corneal clouding, a level of corneal clouding that would probably escape a routine diagnosis but could be identifiable with a slit lamp microscope by a, a trained ophthalmologist. This led to further evaluations for carpal tunnel syndrome which is typically asymptomatic in a child but a detectable by an EMG. To determine if Allison had a mucopolysaccharidosis, we ordinarily want to take a urine test to measure glycosaminoglycans, or GAGs, in the urine. When the GAGs are found to be elevated, that essentially is confirmation of an MPS or mucopolysaccharidosis condition. Hers were elevated, and that indicated that we should be doing additional confirmatory testing, and testing that would determine which of the different MPS types she actually was affected by. When we found the urine GAGs were elevated, we went on with enzyme testing from a blood sample. We determined that she was deficient of the enzyme alpha-L-Igeronides. That defined her condition as mucopolysaccharidosis type 1. You've been listening to the case of Allison, who was diagnosed with MPS-1 by Dr. Chet Whitley, Advanced Therapies Department of Pediatrics and Institute of Human Genetics, University of Minnesota. To learn more about Allison's case and MPS-1 in general, please visit www.mps1diagnosis.com.